the Ramiki family. Are you familiar with them? They came from Germany in 2008 seeking political asylum from religious persecution in Germany. They desired to homeschool their children in Germany and teach them the Christian faith. And it's illegal to homeschool your children in Germany. And so, um, if they had stayed there, they would have likely lost their children. And so they came here seeking political asylum. The current administration in America, though, objected, claiming that the German laws on uh, outlawing homeschooling is not persecution. And so this past Monday, uh, the Supreme Court declined their appeal, uh, which paved the way for them to be deported back to Germany. Michael Ferris, the chairman of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which is representing the family, says this is just another example of the current administration, uh, current administration's uh, overall campaign to crush religious freedom. And I would even add to that that it is not in line with the very spirit of America. Remember, the pilgrims came here seeking religious freedom and parental control over their children's care. Now, the good news is uh, that on Tuesday, uh, the deportation proceedings were um, deferred indefinitely, in large part because of a petition that was directed towards our president and signed by over 127,000 people uh, pleading with him to grant them asylum. And so... Uh, this proceeding was deferred, but it's also revocable. And so pray for that family. On another front, my friend and colleague, Denny Burke, was contacted this week by the Alliance Defending Freedom Organization. Uh, Denny is on the front lines of cultural issues. And this particular organization, Alliance Defending Freedom, is defending a, a woman, a florist in Richland, Washington, whose name is Baronelle Stutzman, who has two lawsuits right now against her, one by the attorney general there and one by a same-sex couple. Keep in mind, she was a florist who had served this couple for many years. When they came into her store, she would sell them flowers. She loved them. She is a believer. In fact, she's a Southern Baptist. And... Um, and she loved this couple, and she would, she would uh, you know, give them the business that they desired. The issue is that she did not feel compelled by her religious beliefs to actually go and offer the floral arrangements for their wedding. And so now this couple has turned on her, a couple that considered her a friend, that she considered a friend, and they have uh, a lawsuit against her. I spoke to this uh, last week as I reminded us that although that we are not presently shedding blood for our faith, don't lose sight of the fact that there is an increasing antagonism towards the gospel in our culture. Um, there's persecution. Uh, religious freedom right now is what is presently at stake, but it only begins there. All persecution is on the same continuum. On one end of the continuum, you have just mere insults. 
And so if someone learns that you're a believer, they kind of raise their eyebrows at you and perhaps call you narrow-minded or, or backwoods or uneducated or intolerant. That's insult. On the other end of the continuum is injury, all right? But don't lose sight of the fact that it's all the same continuum. And somewhere we're in the middle of that in America. But we also saw last week that no matter how dark a culture gets, the kingdom of God cannot be thwarted. The church of God will not be thwarted because Jesus Christ, Lord over heaven and earth, sits enthroned in victory. That verse we looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he is currently sitting at the right hand of God where God is presently making his foot, uh, enemies a footstool for his feet. And the church can only be strengthened by persecution. Have you read Acts lately? Uh, when persecution comes, the church is strengthened because it's purified, okay? And God's people are strengthened and grown in the faith. We are a wartime people, not a peacetime mentality. Are peacetime people because we, we do not thrive in peacetime. And so when persecution comes, the church is strengthened because Jesus offers his presence, his power, his authority in the midst of our struggle. In other words, when the struggle comes, the lordship of Christ comes to bear for his people. And when Jesus comes to bear, guess what? He makes all things new. He fixes the broken things. He makes the sad things come untrue. Now, to make his point, he's prophesying about a historical situation a historical event that actually happened in time and space. About 40 years, four decades after Jesus makes this prophecy, you have the fall of Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. It comes at the end of the Jewish war, okay? In 70 AD, when Titus brings the Romans in and destroys Jerusalem. And we saw last week in verses 5 to 19... What must take place before this destruction happens? We also saw that this destruction is just kind of a paradigm, uh, a, a, a index finger, if you will, um, of the greater judgment to come and how God's people are to respond in the midst of these difficulties. And now Luke is going to share with us the words of Christ Describing the destruction itself. Indeed, the destruction will be a picture of judgment. Look with me in verse 20 of the Olivet Discourse. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that's the Roman armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now this verse describes um, the siege of Jerusalem in language that Jesus has already used earlier in chapter 19. Now remember, he came into Jerusalem in chapter 19, verse 28, and that was on a Sunday. And he is probably speaking here on a Wednesday, uh, this particular discourse. And so sometime between Sunday and Monday, he shared these words, probably a couple of days earlier. And here's what he said in chapter 19. He speaks to the very thing. He says, for the days will come upon you, verse 43, when your enemies 
will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because, notice, you did not know the time of your visitation. Why is judgment coming? Because Israel, the Jewish people, did not know the time of their visitation. What is the visitation? It's when God comes to his people through the Messiah. And the problem is that this was something that was prophesied in their Bible, extending all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God promises that the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent. And throughout the Old Testament, it speaks to the, the reality of a coming Redeemer. But he didn't look the way they assumed he would look. They didn't see their problem as their sin. They saw their problem as out, outward and political. They saw their problem as Rome. And they thought someone would come and redeem them from Rome. They didn't recognize they needed redeeming from their sin. And so they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And now judgment is coming. Josephus. And I told you about Josephus last week. Uh, he was the uh, Jewish historian that actually was an eyewitness to the destruction. Okay? He says that 1.1 million Jews were killed. All right? I told you September 11th, 9-11 pales in comparison to what happened that day, and that's the case. 1.1 million Jews were killed in Jerusalem and 97,000 taken captive. And it wasn't just a difficult and tough fate for them. It was a judgment because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. Now, this term desolation in verse uh, 20 is interesting. Know that its desolation has come clear. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, in Mark's account, Mark 13, and Matthew's account, Matthew 24... They use the language of abomination of desolation. So this is just shorthand for abomination of desolation. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? Well, it harkens all the way back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. All right? In fact, Daniel speaks to this quite often in his book. It describes a coming figure, a coming person who would desecrate the temple... And put an end to the Levitical sacrifices, okay? And, in fact, so detailed was the prophecy of Daniel that liberals had a time with this. They could not even conceive that someone could prophesy something so detailed. So they made the argument that Daniel was written much later than believers claimed that it was written. And that is just the worst argument if you trace their argument. Um, because some 400 years after Daniel makes this prophecy, you have this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the Syrian general, who comes into Jerusalem around 166 to 168 B.C. And he conquers Jerusalem, and he puts an end to the Levitical sacrificial system. He, he requires the Jewish men to stop circumcising their sons on the eighth day, and then 
He requires them to sacrifice swine, pigs, which was an unclean animal in the Jewish world, on the altar of sacrifice, and then set up a, a, a statue of Zeus and probably an image of himself on the altar. That happened in 166 to 168 B.C. And so this event that is clearly spelled out in a book called First Maccabees is a symbol of what Jesus is referring to here. All right? It's a, something, it's a symbol of something equally outrageous that's happening that Jesus is prophesying to. So what is it? What is the desolation? Or as Mark uses, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, the most common explanation and the one I hold to, in fact, Eusebius. Eusebius is the first church historian. Um, the, the desolation here is the Roman army led by Titus. And they brought in all these images of, of emperor worship, okay, into the temple. And they utterly destroyed the temple um, and killed, mutilated hundreds of thousands of people. And they just kind of torched the city. It was a terrible, terrible time. Of course, given the fact that the destruction of Jerusalem is just a pattern of the end time judgment, which is clearly stated in this discourse, I believe there is another referent that this speaks to. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can see the passage on the screen. I believe this speaks to the end time Antichrist to come. All right? In fact, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, if I had time, I could show you here how dependent Paul is on Daniel here. Daniel chapter 9 in particular and chapter 11 and chapter 12. And so this, this abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks of had a fulfillment in Antiochus the, the fourth. In 168 B.C., it has a fulfillment in the Jerusalem destruction in 70 A.D., but I believe the ultimate fulfillment is in this man of lawlessness. Notice it says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and our worship of, uh, object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I don't believe the temple is going to be rebuilt when Paul uses the language of temple, he's referring to the church, okay? And so this man is going to be some kind of figure who comes into the midst of um, the church and becomes, this church becomes predominantly apostate and unbelieving. I believe it's happening even now. Not that we know who the, uh, the lawless one is or the Antichrist is, but I believe this is happening even now even though Jesus will preserve a true and pure church. And this man will have so much influence and authority in the worldwide community that he may as well call himself God. Okay? And I believe that's what this, the ultimate fulfillment is here. And yet we can say the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. We read the text last week in 1 John 2. There's one ultimate Antichrist, but there are many 
Antichrist, little a, Antichrist. And you can see that in the church today. You know, there's even a church in Louisville today, a Baptist church, okay, who argues, in fact, they've done more than argue, they have ordained an unrepentant homosexual uh, as one of their pastors, okay? And you see that today, and then you, uh, that's lawlessness. That's what that is. And then you have in other places uh, spiritual leaders and pastors who are embracing other faiths, saying there are many ways to God, um, and as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. Well, let me just say, if there are many ways to God, the most horrific thing that's ever happened in the history of the world is the father crushing his son to death on the cross, okay? There is one way to God, and it's through a crushed and resurrected Messiah, all right? But that's the spirit of Antichrist that you see so prevalent today. And so Titus, this Roman general, it's not the same Titus that we read about in the, in, in the book of Titus. Uh, this Roman general, his coming in and destroying the temple uh, with all the paraphernalia of, of emperor worship is kind of like a scouting film, if you will. It's a scouting film that gives us this picture of the one to come. The ultimate lawless one. And this desolation is going to be very uh, uh, severe. It was severe then. The coming desolation will be severe. In fact, Jesus is going to say at this time, Jerusalem is not the place you're going to want to be. All right? Notice in verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, speaking to the believers there. And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance. That just tells you this is God's judgment. This isn't just bad luck this city is experiencing, okay? This is God's judgment. Days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now here's the question. Is Jesus, by this warning, saying that believers should avoid danger? Okay, he's, tell, he's telling the believers, you need to flee the city. And if you're in the country, you don't need to come into this city. Is he saying, you don't go where there's persecution? Uh, there's persecution in many parts of the world today. Does that mean that Christians are not to go there as missionaries? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. This is a unique event. This is a judgment, okay? This is God's judgment on people who did not recognize the, the visitation of God through His Messiah, okay? This is a judgment on a people. And for the believer, our judgment has already taken place. Now, in this period of time, the judgment was about to take place a couple of days later when Jesus would go to the cross. But we don't need to be judged again. Our judgment, God's judgment on our sin takes place in the person of Jesus, Christ the Messiah. He is our substitute. Understand that. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will ever commit as a believer has been judged in the Messiah. Okay? And so if you go home today and willfully sin, the judgment has already occurred. 
Now you say, well, that just gives me a ticket to sin. No, it does not give you a ticket to sin because grace transforms us. I'm just telling you that your sin has been judged in the Messiah. Now, there's consequences to your sin. You can be disciplined for your sin. You will be disciplined for your sin because the Father is really good at growing us up. But the fact is, the gospel tells us our sins have been judged. And Jesus was about to take that judgment. And so he was telling the believers to get out because judgment's coming. And for the believer, there is no double jeopardy. There is no double jeopardy. There is a one-time judgment. And this warning was heeded. This warning to the believers was heeded. They heard the word of Christ and they heeded what he said. Decades later, when they started seeing Rome come in to the city, they remembered the prophetic words of Jesus and they left Jerusalem before the serious fighting began. According to Eusebius, again, the early church historian in the 4th century, they gathered all their belongings and they, they fled across the Jordan River to a city called Pella. In fact, Josephus says they were leaving the city like swimmers deserting a sinking ship. The believers heard the word of Christ. And consequently, they escaped Jerusalem before it fell. All this because they took Jesus' word of warning on judgment. And this is the way it's always been. God has always provided a refuge for his people when judgment comes. We see it already back when Noah built the ark. God always provides a refuge for his people. When you study the scripture, he always provides this refuge. Uh, This morning I was reading in the Psalms, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. God does that. He always does that for his people. We will not be judged again. He always provides a refuge for every single believer except for one. Except for one. Do you know the Bible records there was one righteous person? In fact, he was the most righteous of them all. He never sinned. Every moment of his life, he loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. Every moment of his life, he loved his enemies more than you love your spouse or children or parents. Okay? And yet, this one righteous man did not escape judgment. God did not provide a refuge for this one righteous one. God's wrath, God's judgment in full fury poured out on this one. Why? So that we who deserve this judgment could find our safety in him. That's the gospel. Safety from what? The judgment we deserve. Don't talk to me about judgment. Don't talk to me about wrath. Without judgment and wrath, there's no understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel is the greatest and the most clear and heinous expression of God's wrath in the history of the world. 
Our sin deserves judgment. Whether you feel that or not is irrelevant. The Bible says we deserve the judgment of God and God poured out His judgment on His Son so that you could find safety in Him. And the judgment that we deserve is pointed to in this passage as it speaks to the judgment that was falling on Israel. Indeed, notice verse 22. Verse 22, it says, For these are days of vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord. Okay, Paul tells us that. Moses tells us that. Days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, what is he speaking of there? All that is written. Um, The fall of Jerusalem was an act of God's judgment that was prophesied by Moses and the prophets. You don't have to read the prophets long to see that God is prophesying through these prophets the judgment on Jerusalem. Now, granted, most of those or many of these prophecies speak to a a time period that takes us back to 586 B.C. when the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar would judge Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And so many of these prophecies speak to that. But Jesus saw those judgments as a prophetic preview of this judgment. In fact, he sees this judgment in Jerusalem as a prophetic preview of the end-time judgment at the end of the age when he returns, okay? So it, it's, it may seem a little cloudy to you, but it's not as cloudy as we think. When there are prophecies in the Old Testament, typically there's more than one fulfillment. There's an initial fulfillment, then there's a farther fulfillment, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment, okay? And so the judgment that was prophesied on Israel in 586 B.C. or Judah uh, points to this judgment in 70 A.D., but it points to an ultimate judgment at the end of the age. Now, what happened to Jerusalem is a warning uh, to take at face value what Jesus says about coming judgment. Because... Jesus' prophecies here about this day, the day in which Jerusalem will be destroyed, is so detailed and so remarkable. And there's no doubt this was written before the fact, okay? Because the writers would have expounded on what happened, just like Josephus did. If he was as detailed and accurate about that judgment, shouldn't we take him at face value about the judgment to come? I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says about this text, about the destruction here. It served, he says, as a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. The uprolling of the curtain on the great drama of the world's doom. That beautiful city was the very crown of the entire earth because God had dwelt there. It may be compared to the diamond in a ring. The jewel whose setting was the whole world. And when the jewel was destroyed, it was a warning that the ring itself would by and by be crushed and consumed. I hope you believe this. I mean, I really do. I hope you believe this. 
The fact that Jesus prophesied this judgment four decades before it happened with such precise detail tells us there's nothing you've ever heard that's more true than the fact there is a judgment that is coming. A judgment awaits the entire world at the end of the age. We'll see that even more clearly next week. And this passage played out in space and time is a dress rehearsal. It's a dress rehearsal of that day. Notice the just the emotion and the pathos that, that is being conveyed here. Notice in verse 23, Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The kinds of things that Josephus describes in his book, The War of the Jews, can scarcely be repeated in a pulpit. He was an eyewitness, and it was utterly gruesome. Crucifixion, cannibalism, starvation, um, human sacrifice. He writes that the, the survivors were roaming the streets, jealous of the corpses that remained unburied lying in the streets. They were jealous of the corpses. He said there was no sound. People could not cry because they were spent emotionally. In fact, the only sound you could hear was the laughter of the Roman soldiers. That's how it was in 70 A.D. And it is just a minor league junior varsity picture of the judgment that comes at the end of the age. We need to understand that. The key word here in verse 23 is wrath. It's wrath. Wrath against this people. This word, orge, is the most common word in the New Testament to speak of God's wrath. Now, His wrath is different than ours. Don't impute your sense of fallen anger onto God. All right? When we get angry, it's because typically of our sin. Because we're so self-absorbed, we're so selfish, and we did not get our way, or our expectations were not met in a particular situation, and so we just fly off the handle. No, God's wrath is holy and loving and righteous and just wrath, okay? It is, it is what a loving God does when He's exposed to sin. He pours out His wrath, okay? And the Bible tells us a great deal about this wrath. Um, for one, and, and this is for those today who have never been converted to Christ. God's wrath is on you even now. Whether you recognize it or whether you feel it, the wrath of God is on you even now. In John 3.36 It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay? That's how you escape the wrath. You you believe in the Son. You flee to the Son. You're united to the Son where the wrath has already been appeased in Him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not believe in the Son will not see life. That's what he said. Actually, he says, whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. He sees belief and obedience as the same thing. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. 
presently. Okay? That's a bad deal. So even if you don't feel the wrath of God, if you are not a believer, a repentant, committed believer in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. This wrath is just kind of like a physical, material wrath. It is JV compared to the wrath that you will experience if you don't flee to God's refuge that he provides in his son. In fact, the final demonstration of this wrath can hardly be uttered in human words. Look to Revelation 19.15. Now, what is this... uh, This language here of the time of the Gentiles. Well, the ultimate effect, historians uh, have spoken to this. The ultimate effect of this war where Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, is that now, starting in 70 A.D. for the first time, Christianity is cut off from its Jewish origins. All right? It's virtually cut off from its Jewish origins. Uh, From now on... The future of Christianity rests in a Gentile world. All right? That's, I think, in part what he means. Additionally, this time is a period of world domination by the Gentiles. In Daniel 2, you've got this, this, um, this great statue that represents a Gentile power. In, in Daniel 7, you've got the, the beast who come out of the sea who represent the Gentile powers. And this will be the time of Gentile power and domination until the kingdom of God comes in full consummation at the end of the age. But ironically, it's also the time for Gentiles to be converted to Christ. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, I say this with uh, the deepest of sincerity. Flee to Christ. As Jesus tells These believers flee from the city, flee from the judgment to come, flee from the judgment by going to God's refuge that he has provided in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this has been bad news up to this point. I feel like one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers (laughs) that are caricatured. But the passage or our passage today ends with glorious good news. Again, There's no good news without the bad news, all right? There is no good news without the bad news. So we've seen this picture of judgment. We end with a proclamation of victory. Look in verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. This is metaphorical language. It's picked up directly from the Old Testament. You see it in Isaiah 13 to speak of uh, God's judgment on the Babylonians. You see it in Isaiah 34 to speak of Isaiah or God's judgment on Edom. You see it in Ezekiel 32 to speak of God's judgment on Egypt. So why would they use this end of the time language, end of the world language to describe this judgment? Because for these nations... When God judged them, the collapse of their world was the end of their world as they knew it. And so these cataclysms, this this language, is a foretaste of the last day. The day of ultimate judgment. The day when Christ returns. And in verse 26, in very fearful language, we will see those 
how they will respond to that day. A fearful reaction, verse 26. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, metaphorical language speaking to the judgment on on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but speaking to another day. This is a coming attraction. If you're not a believer, this should cause you to tremble. It It should cause you to shake in your shoes. This is the normal response to the judgment that's coming. It's a coming attraction. In fact, every earthquake, every hurricane, every terrorist attack, a a plane disappeared uh, in the South China Seas uh, over the last couple of days. And and, uh, now they're thinking that may have been some kind of terrorist act. They don't know. Um, Every lawless bill set forth by a lawless government. All of these things are are birth pains. Okay? They're not the judgment per se. They are the birth pains of... Of the coming and final judgment. But verse 27 tells us. For a believer. We don't have to tremble. We don't have to fear. That's one of the purposes of this. Of this uh, discourse. God is encouraging his people. (laughs) He's saying these things are going to happen. But you don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. Okay. Because all the things that are going to happen. You're going to escape them. You may die. But not a hair of your hair will perish. He says. Notice in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is taken from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, I wish I had time to expound on that. I'll just pick this up. It says, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. But he came with the clouds of heaven. This is fulfillment of Daniel 7 when God comes through the Messiah and crushes all the beasts that come out of the sea. Now what's remarkable about this is that he is prophesying his coming in glory and power and he's just days from the cross. That's what, This is ironic language. He's been speaking about being put to death by the hands of sinful men. And now he's talking about coming in power and glory. I mean, think about it. The one who's going to be crucified as a cr- common criminal, he is saying is going to come back in power and glory. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, the clouds, coming on the clouds represents God's presence, his power, his authority, his glory. Psalm 104, verse 3, he makes the clouds his chariot. Isn't that beautiful? So when Jesus returns, the Son of Man, it can only mean that God is no longer present in the temple. He is present in the Son of Man, the Son of God. And that makes sense of verse 28 as we close this out. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. He's speaking to the believers here. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What does it mean to straighten up and raise your heads? This is, again, metaphorical language. It's a signal of of hope and confidence. For instance, Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient of doors, that the King of glory may come in. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be fearful because the good guy wins in the end. Okay? This is the ultimate story. 
Jesus is saying that in the midst of this utter calamity, Christians can take heart. Why? Because our redemption is drawing near. Our redemption is drawing near. Now what is he talking about there? The death of Jesus, which he's about to incur, experience in a couple of days, actually, ironically, spells the doom of the dark side. All the darkness we read about here, all the darkness we see in our culture, it's got a shelf life. It has a termination date, just like old milk. All right? The death of Jesus is the doom of the dark side. Why? Because he's coming to redeem. And what does it mean to redeem? It's the, it's the paying, the obtaining of a release through a payment. All right? When Jesus offered his infinite payment, what did he offer? His life, his perfect blood. He, he redeemed us from the guilt of sin. All right? Our guilt on our sin is the throne of the devil's dominion. When the guilt is removed, when the guilt is propitiated and expiated, the devil's throne is undermined. And 2,000 years ago, he removed the guilt. Okay? And the devil's head was crushed in principle 2,000 years ago when he was raised from the grave. That's the redemption that he is speaking of that is drawing near. But I think it speaks to something else as well. We haven't received all the benefits of our redemption, or have we? We live in a fallen world. Our bodies age. We, we are stressed and we struggle. We go through all the anxieties of living in the not yet of our full redemption. Here's the good news. When Jesus returns in all his glory, all the problems you have right now are going to be placed underneath his feet. Now, what are the problems you face right now? Sin. Your biggest problem is not outside of you. It's inside of you. It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. It's not your parents. It's not your teacher. It's not your coach. Your biggest problem is your sin. It's going to be placed underneath his feet. The sentence of death. We have a, we have a funeral Tuesday, don't we? We're burying two brothers. Kay Wood's brothers. That's not the way it should be. The sentence of death is going to be placed underneath his feet. What else are your problems? Sin, the sentence of death, stress. You ever stressed? Placed underneath his feet. Strife, you ever, you ever fight? You ever, you ever have turmoil with your spouse or with your coworkers or your neighbor? Strife's going to be placed underneath his feet. Sadness, you ever sad? There will be no more tears. Okay. Every negative S you can think of, sin, strife, suffering, struggle, sorrow, everything is going to be placed underneath his feet when Christ returns in his power and glory. And that's why the very last prayer of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20 is, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'd like to close this out with words that I could not say any better. And we'll call it a day. J.C. Ryle. He sums it up as well as anybody. He says, However terrible the signs of Christ's second coming may be to the impenitent, that is, the person who has not repented of their sins, they need not strike terror into the hearts of the true believer. They ought rather to fill him with joy. 
They ought to remind him that his complete deliverance from sin, the world, and the devil is close at hand and that he will soon bid an eternal farewell to sickness and sorrow and death and temptation. The very day when the unconverted man shall lose everything shall be the day when the believer shall enter on his eternal reward. The very hour that the worldly man's hope shall perish shall be the hour when the believer's hope shall be exchanged for joyful certainty and full possession. And that's why we need to preach to ourselves every day and preach to each other. We need each other, the local church. We need to preach to each other that all these realities we see in our culture, all the struggles we have are not the final word. The final word is a person. All right? The final word is the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. And that's why Paul would say in Titus 2, speaking to believers, he says, We are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. He died in our place to redeem us from every lawless deed and to redeem and present for himself a people jealous for good deeds. That's our hope. That's our hope, even in the midst of darkness and lawlessness. And if you don't have that hope today, that's the good news. You don't have to clean yourself up. God's not looking for a better you. You don't need a better you. You need a Savior. And if you'll repent of your sins and come to Christ, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. I'd love to talk to you about that this morning.